This is episode number five with Vanessa Lowe. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on Your Impactful Journey. Hey guys, I'm really proud to bring Vanessa Lowe into your lives. She's an amazingly inspirational woman. When she was almost 16 years old, Vanessa was run over by a train and almost lost her life. Vanessa Lowe is now a double leg amputee, Paralympic champion and world record holder for her T42 classification in the long jump. I sat with Vanessa in her home country of Germany for this episode and it's a real eye opener and an unbelievable example of how to use adversity to your advantage. She's also an ambassador for the world's largest ever road safety campaign alongside mega stars like Pharrell Williams, Rafael Nadal, Fernando Alonso and many more big names. Vanessa also shares her very special bond with the Michael Schumacher Foundation and the impact that they're making in the world through this organization. In this episode, you will learn how acceptance of self is the step to perceived acceptance in society, what this tragedy did to Vanessa's family, how failure of expectations creates greater strength and how to use the so-called failure to create future success. We also speak about Vanessa's athletics journey and what the future looks like for Vanessa with the massive changes she's made since winning gold in Rio last year, and we also talked about some other really cool things in her life. Prepare to be inspired by her humble soul. Vanessa Lowe, welcome to Your Life of Impact. Hey, Brady. (laughs) (laughs) You're actually the first international person that I've had on the podcast, the first foreigner. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. Well, let's see how long it takes their listeners to pick up my accent. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll give it away right now because... How cool is this? We're sitting together in your home country of Germany and we're in this beautiful big home in Cologne. I know you're not from Cologne, but it's awesome to have you on the podcast. You are obviously German. We're in your home country. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's nice to be back actually. It is good to be back? Yeah, definitely. And at the sweetest time of the year. So I kind of skipped winter the last two years pretty much. So just like leaving Europe to Australia and then now coming back here. Um, in summer, it's nice. Yeah, yeah you've done well. My uh, gorgeous fiance Marie, as you know, is from Sweden, and she spent a lot of years doing that, avoiding the Swedish winters by uh, spending Swedish summer and then coming to Australia and spending Australian summers. Yeah, I can't blame her. <laughs> Absolutely. So, obviously, uh, we said you're not from Cologne. Whereabouts in Germany are you from? Where did you grow up? Um, I'm pretty much closer to Sweden than to Cologne, pretty much. Um, I'm north of Hamburg, so it's kind of like the coastal area between Hamburg and, and Denmark. What's it called? Ratzeburg. Ratzeburg. Yeah, maybe famous for rowing. We have a sports school there. Okay. Yep. Right, there you go. Did I say it right? Ratzeburg? Um, Ratzeburg. Ah, <laughs> so I've got to get better at this pronunciation uh, for my Swedish, actually. So 
the reason why uh, we're here in in Cologne is uh, preparing for. So I'm here with my athletes preparing for the World Championships in London, and you're obviously here training. Uh, you're a Paralympic athlete, and I've known you for a few years now through Paralympic sport. But what brings us closer together these days is your awesome boyfriend, a great mate of mine, who was on episode three of the podcast, Scotty Ridden. Yeah, um, it's a bit weird for me to not be in my own preparation, but it's really nice to actually be here and help him, um, yeah, to do well. Because it's especially like right before competition, it's really hard to sometimes just keep sane and just like, you know, don't get caught up in, I don't know, all the stuff beside training. And I think him having me here is quite helpful for him. And I think for me, gives me some sort of purpose as well in like keeping him, yeah, um, focused and keeping him in the normal life a bit. So you guys have been dating for how long now? A few years? Um, a couple of years now? Yeah, I think we started talking about oh, almost four years ago. Um, now a couple since pretty much three years. Yeah, very good. And so you mentioned there before that uh, it's it, you know it can be hard leading into a major champs for preparation. Now you're in a bit of a different situation here at the moment because you're actually not preparing for the World Championships uh, that are in London in a couple of weeks. And by the time this goes to air, these championships will have already happened. So can you just explain to the listeners why you're not allowed to compete in these championships? Um, well, first of all, yes, I'm not allowed because uh, I'm currently switching countries. So I'm in the process of getting Australian citizen in order to, pre- um, to represent Australia. Um also, obviously, I'm still coming back from injury from last year. Um, and so for me, it was either um, kind of going through till this year's World Champs and not take a break or take a proper break at healthy and go for the long run for Tokyo. Um, and so altogether, the plans of like um, changing countries and yeah, together with my injury and a change of coaching, everything played together very well. So I'm taking this year off for competition and um, focus on Tokyo. Love it. And uh, I believe that the process of you becoming an Australian citizen to be able to represent Australia for Tokyo is is happening quite fast. Yeah, I'm already a permanent resident, uh, which we didn't expect to happen that fast. Um, if anyone knows the processes in Australia, everything takes ages. And I probably filled out about 500 pages of uh, application. Um, we'll see how it goes now. Um, I'm obviously still just a permanent resident, not a citizen, so I'm not um, um, good to compete for Australia yet. Um, if everything goes well, I could be a citizen by the end of the year and hopefully um, do um, regional season. And we would welcome that with open arms to have you uh, competing for Australia. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Okay, so and you mentioned that uh, a new coach is part of your choice, uh, part of your reasoning and your transition and everything like that. Obviously, moving to Australia, you're going to have a new coach. Now, I'm very excited because that new coach is, I would say, the world's best para-athletics coach, <laughs> Irina Dovaskina. She creates a lot of champions and uh, obviously a couple of them are here now. One of them is your boyfriend, Scotty. We've got Evan O'Henlon in the training squad. You're also trading partners with Chad Paris, known as the White Tiger. How does it feel for you coming across the other side of the world to have a new coach? Because I know for athletes to transition into those environments, it's quite, it's, it's a big change because the athlete needs to learn the coach, the coach needs to learn the athlete. How do you feel about this transition? 
Um, I'm quite excited because um, I did that before, obviously. Um, I started training in Germany under um, a German Paralympic coach. I obviously didn't do very well. Um, I didn't develop quite the way I expected to. And um, yeah, I didn't win medals in London. And after I moved to America um, to give it another shot and um, did very well. And now going from something that worked very well for me to something new is obviously quite a bit of a bigger challenge because um, the last change I did, like I couldn't lose. Um, obviously now it is um, about something different and I believe it's almost the harder part. Um, it is like not saying it's easy to win a gold medal, but actually turning around and win another gold medal is probably um, the bigger task. And um, now doing that together with Irina, um, I'm really excited because I believe her training is awesome also going to prepare me well for everyday life after sports, um, actually getting healthy and getting a balanced body, um, which is not always easy as a Paralympic athlete because we have imbalances in our bodies, our disabilities impair us in a way um, a lot of people don't understand. And I think she has a really good knowledge and a really good um, yeah, experience in order to, to help us achieve a healthy lifestyle and obviously compete well. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of what excites me about your transition, actually. Uh, before we move on, and you mentioned gold medal there, we'll definitely get into that a bit later. Uh, talking about London, so you won't be there as a competitor, but you're going to be commentating, correct? Yes, yeah, it's a, a new task for me. Never done that before. <laughs> Have you done your research? Um, not quite yet. <laughs> um, I well, obviously... You have a bit of inside goss with the uh, Aussie athletes now. Yeah, definitely. And I know quite a few um, teammates of the US team quite well, obviously, because I trained there and then the German people. Um, so it's quite nice because I, I just know so many athletes. Like I'm, I'm part of that whole system, um, like part of the movement of the Paralympics since nine years pretty much so I mean obviously there are still coming new athletes through and like I don't know about and there's some some classes I'm just not very familiar with but um altogether I think I just experienced so many athletes coming through I know um how they did like five years ago see how well they're doing now um so it's going to be exciting to to um yeah share my experience and share um what I know about all the other athletes now, you talked about being part of that Paralympic movement for a lot of years now. Can you take us back to your teenage days and tell the listeners how you became a Paralympic athlete, how you became an amputee to then step into the Paralympic world? So I was um, a long-distance runner, um, purely not out of competitiveness, but um, like I really enjoyed being outside um, especially the area where I'm from if anyone has been there before it's beautiful like all those lakes and wood around and like the beaches and like for me um, running was a tool to be outside and I did my 60 60 70 k's a week just to to use my time um, to do something that I liked um, and then I had my accident just before my 16th birthday just before my first marathon actually um, and um, for me it was just really important to get back into normal life as fast as possible so um everyone would believe that obviously that's quite a big card in life like losing my legs but in my opinion it never been really like it never really hit me quite hard like um for me sorry just before we go forward what what was your accident what happened 
for you to lose your legs? Sure, yeah, kind of cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was waiting for the train to arrive, um, got pushed by the crowd, um, fell in front of the approaching train. Um, one of my legs was amputated straight away, um, got taken to hospital um, in first surgery. My other leg was injured so badly that they decided to amputate as well, um, which was definitely the best decision because... Um, yeah, my life was definitely more important than keeping keeping one leg attached. Um, altogether, I was really, really lucky um, in considering how severe the injury were and um, how many injuries I had beside, um, obviously, my legs being amputated. Um, I bounced back quite um, quite healthy. Like, all that is left is my the amputation of both my legs, but my entire other body just healed up very well. So you were waiting for a train and there was a bit of a crowd and you got bumped and fell onto the train tracks and then the train ran over you and amputated one leg instantly yes and then uh and then obviously there was a did you lose consciousness or anything at that stage do you remember um i had quite big injuries in my head as well so my short-term memory was really affected um i can't really remember five months um which is um, obviously Five part before the accident. Um, a couple months before the accident, a couple months after the accident. Obviously, I was in a um, induced coma for a couple of weeks, um, which obviously is gone. Um, there are bits and pieces here and there when people tell me some stuff that happened, and I was um, still awake. I still talk to people um, at the. Um, the place where the accident happened and like um, pretty much just after I woke up from coma but which I just can't really recall um, but when they tell me it's like oh yeah I kind of feel like I I experienced that and I said that but like it's just really um, yeah really not not so close to my memory anymore. Okay and then obviously so you were in hospital with head injuries and uh, limbs amputated, obviously lucky to be alive. How long were you in hospital for? Um, it took quite a while. So um, when I got to the hospital, I obviously had the first surgery straight away um, and got into the induced coma. But from there, um, they just couldn't quite tell how bad my injury was because um, I had quite bad injuries um close to the spine and um, everything in, around my back. Um, so um, in a couple of more um, surgeries, um, they more assessed um, what was going on in my body. Um, so altogether, I spent um, about two weeks, three weeks in coma and altogether, I think five months in hospital um, with um, seven surgeries along the way and then um, straight after pretty much rehab and um, so altogether I think it was a process of like um, nine months. Wow and with two to three weeks in a coma. Yes. How was that for your parents? Have you spoken to them about how that was for them to visit you in hospital at that period of time? I think the hardest part was for them to, like, they didn't know where I was. Like, we had a really trust um, trust relationship. Um, so my parents could always rely on me. Like, I never had to tell where I was going because they always knew I was safe and sound. And um, when I didn't come home that evening, um, they didn't know where I was. And so um, calling out the police and um, not knowing what happened to me and um, them telling them that they found a girl and that she's in hospital must have been, like, the worst um, worst part about the whole thing and them having to go in and identify me and obviously didn't look like myself because of all the in like all the surgery they already had and um, yeah all the injuries obviously I went through um, but um, 
when I talked to them about it a couple of years ago, um, they said obviously it was hard for them, but it made the family a lot stronger. Like um, they were like little... Um, I mean, every family has that, like a little bit um, of discussions here and there and like disagreements here and there. But like in that moment, like my entire family stick together um, and yeah, they were all just there. Um, everyone took off work um, and were there for my parents. Um, my my big sister was amazing. Um, she was herself going through some tough times um, during that time. But in that that moment, nothing mattered, but like the help of the family. And so um, I think a great benefit we um, we gained out of that, ex that experience was that um, my family worked as a family just perfectly fine. Yeah, it's amazing how big adversities can just shift people's perceptions and strengthen relationships. And it sounds like you guys are already a close family, but obviously something like this helped you all work together. So two to three weeks in a coma, um, pretty horrific, and then nine months of you know hospital and rehab and things like that. So you obviously spent a lot of time in a wheelchair. How long was it before you were actually able to walk on prosthetic legs? Um, I think mostly I spent time laying because of my injuries. I wasn't able to sit for a long time. Um, and so I think about four months, three months after my accident, I was allowed to sit again. So I spent about, um, I don't know, a couple of months just in the wheelchair, but in and out sitting. Like after such a long time just laying down, um, it's amazing how weak the body gets. Um, if anyone knows me now, um, I'm not overweight or massive, but I was like 15 kilos lighter back then, um, which is like, massive so just like sitting up was like a big task for me for a while um i got my first set of legs um to try and stand up and get used to it about five months after my accident um and it took me another uh, i would say probably three months to to like actually walk and do some sort of life on my legs and you started to before i rewound to uh, ask you to tell us more about your accident you started to say how you know, you were a runner beforehand and you wanted to get back to that. So obviously once you were up on, I'm just imagining you now, I don't know much about this this part of your story, but I imagine understanding your determination that once you were able to stand and walk, that you were ready to run pretty quickly. How, how what was that process like? When were you exposed to the potential to be able to run? Um, I think that actually took me quite a few weeks to actually see the potential because um, when I was still waiting for my first set of legs, I um, I imagined, I was quite naive, I imagined everything to be that easy because I was like, well, my body's healing up, eventually I'll be healthy enough to try on legs. The legs are working perfectly fine, technology is pretty well, and I just put on those legs and I'll be fine. Um, but it wasn't that easy and the first time I wore my legs and everything was painful and it was just like not that easy as I imagined it to be. I think that was the first time ever that I had like a bit of a down after my accident where I was like really discouraged about the whole process and um like starting to understand how long it's going to take um but once I got over that and um for me I'm always a person that um figures out things myself like I don't like to talk about it I'd rather just like spend time thinking about it and making a plan and making like um like planning my next steps I think like a couple of weeks after um I had that sorted out in my head and um once I approached it a different way and approached it in like 
that it's going to be a journey, but the journey is going to be a ride as well. Um, I think then I started making bigger pros, um, progresses um, in walking. And um, that's when I plan the next step in saying like, um, I definitely want to go back into sports. Like I don't want to be competitive or anything like that. I just feel like um, sports going to help me live a healthy life. And um, that's something I really enjoyed before my accident. So it was really important to get back to that and um, stay mentally healthy. I think um, therefore um, running was important to me. Well, I was just going to say physically enough of a feat, such a big battle. Mentally, obviously really tough for you. Obviously you, you worked a lot internally with yourself, but how was it in terms of then, you know, you had to learn how to, to be again, to be yourself, to be not just in your house once you could get up and walking, but out in society. How was it when you first started to go out into to your social circles again? I think the hardest part about that was everyone treating me like a, like a raw egg. Like everyone was just like so careful about it. It's like, I'm still the same person. Like, stop talking to me like that. It's like, yes, I need more help. And um, I was really grateful that um, not just my family, but also my friends um, were really supportive. Like some of them lived with my family for a while, so they would help me. I was living in, um, my, my room was on the first floor. So like stairs obviously was, a, um, was huge for me. So carrying me up and down the stairs, um, in school helped me around um, like um, helped me with the stairs helped me with my backpack and everything but at some point you just want to be seen the same way and um, I think um, that was the step well that step of healing um, in like being, be, being treated in the same way happened like uh, heaps of years after in America and I think that's why moving to America changing coaches um, and being there was so important in my journey because it was like a part of healing that had to happen. I love that that you know I want to be treated by a raw like a sorry a, a raw egg, and I feel like that's that's a, a mindset that a lot of Paralympic athletes take with them, and which helps them to become world's best athletes after major adversity. Now, moving forward a little bit, um, obviously you you did learn to run again. How old were you when you were actually running on your first set of blades? Do you remember? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I was 18. Um, that was, um, so when I picked up running or when I wanted to pick up running, obviously the first, um, hurdle you had to conquer was getting a set of legs. And, um, back then like Paralympic sports, like my disability just wasn't like, didn't happen within track. Like I, I try to obviously use the internet and like look up other athletes and see how they do it and say like what sort of legs they use and I was just really hard to find anything because back then it was just not normal and when I got to my first sports club um, that was dealing with um, impaired athletes um, they just didn't really know and so they approached then my later sports club in Leverkusen because they were much more experienced with um, amputation and um, they was like well with your kind of disability you're probably not going to be competitive in your sports so um we can't really give you any advice um and but may i was like really stubborn about it and just like trying to talk them into just giving me a shot and just like letting me try it um so i got invited to like a um kind of like a talent camp and got my first set of legs um borrowed um where could just like try out and see how it is to run and honestly um that kind of was 
very similar to my first walking experiences because like everything that I loved about running just wasn't there anymore it wasn't easy and it wasn't like everything happened on the track so it wasn't out in the nature and it wasn't on my own because like I needed so much help and I need people how to tell me to do things and like set up my legs and like for me running was always like something really natural that like everyone is able to do and suddenly like needing prosthetic legs and needing help to set it up and all that was just really annoying for me um so um again it took me a couple months actually to get back to that and actually pursue that dream a bit more because um when I returned home from that I just didn't quite like it and I didn't quite you know see the benefit for me in it it's like that experience a lot of athletes have when they first get their first running like I didn't have like for me it wasn't great and it wasn't fantastic and it was difficult and bit painful and yeah just not that great so what did make you pursue it then what made you push through that pain and what made you have another go and to find that love for it you just did you know it was there but it just wasn't there yet um I think after a couple months when I was like back in school and living like a sort of normal life again and like finishing off in rehab I was still going to walking school but like being pretty much back in normal life like there was a big part missing and I was throwing some stuff in the water um was going to the gym and trying to put on some some sort of muscle on me again and it's like um I knew that I had to do something again um I'm just not a water person like um swimming just didn't quite cut it honestly and um I knew that running would give me um a bit more satisfaction again in life um so I gave it another go and I approached it a bit differently that time. Um, I knew that like just a set of borrowed legs won't help it, like won't make it that journey that I wanted. Um, so I needed to find someone giving me a set of legs because back then obviously everything was quite expensive. I mean, still is. Um, and I had to pursue help. I had to like have someone telling me how to run and like not just do it on my own so I decided to um, move on to Leverkusen and say okay um, let's try it um, I am trying to um, run the 100 meter instead of going for the long distances um, I'm trying to um, yeah do it your way and then we'll see how we go oh, excellent and then obviously it went really well because you qualified for your first major championships was 2011 world para world champs is that right for for Christchurch um yeah I actually went to um like world games in 2009 as well um which was probably back then my biggest experience and probably the experience that actually made me stuck to the sport because I had some some successes there um I jumped quite well like um I only picked up jumping again like half a year before and like I back then um broke the world record and um competed well in the 100 um obviously post Paralympic year so they were not a world record in 2009 um back then it was still the the 72 three meters 72 in a jump the 93 in India um that year um, so everyone was just like, um, I think obviously showing people that it was possible was a big part of my like feel of success, not just quite winning a medal. I mean, in that point I knew like a lot of athletes weren't around and it wasn't that big of a competition, but I think just showing off that I'd be able to achieve like running fast and or running times that no one expected me to do, um, was quite amazing for me. Um, and definitely like made me pursue it a bit bit longer 
So that, sorry, I wasn't even aware of the World Games. And so that was your first majors. That obviously got you hooked. Then you went into 2011 World Championships in New Zealand. And then the 2012 Paralympics in London. And obviously, having broken the world record in 2009, you would have been going in with some pretty high hopes and a few more years of training under your belt. How did the, how did the London 2012 Paralympics go for you? Um, I think, well, London was a great, was actually an amazing experience, just being there and how, like, Paralympic sport was displayed there was like something I hasn't haven't experienced up until then um, but I think going back a bit in 2011 when I competed at my first world championships I think that what made that what happened there is what made me fail in London because I was um in a position where I felt like I had to prove myself because like no one believed in me no one really expected me to run let alone run fast and um, going into um, Christchurch into New Zealand um, with a world record in a long jump everyone kind of expected me to win gold and not just win gold but also like smash the world record again um, especially because I was then training full-time and um, I went in and was so insecure about things um, nothing I trained um, seemed to work and I finished off fourth with being about a meter behind my my personal bests and um, yeah obviously not meddling and I think that competition kind of broke my neck and kind of um, yeah probably didn't make me perform well up until probably 2014 again um, so going into London I had that experience that I had from from the year before um, in the back of my mind and I didn't quite recover from that um, I didn't really have the confidence anymore I didn't quite had um, I don't know what sport was about for me in the beginning um, kind of changed in 2011 like it kind of changed into something that I had to prove myself and I had to comp um, compete well and I had to do good distances and I think I kind of lost for a couple of years what sport was about for me. And you just mentioned there about wasn't until 2014 then that you started to compete well again and I think that was an event in Swansea and then so we look at that we look at Doha we look at Rio just take us through a glimpse of those sort of steps. Would you say that it sounds like 2011, 2012 didn't really go to plan. Would you say that things started to fall into place mentally and physically? And I would say that 2015, 2016 definitely went to plan for you. Yeah, definitely. Um, so when um, I finished my education here in 2013, um, I kind of had to decide whether or what I wanted to do because it was either job or sport because like up until that point I was really just working full-time and trying to make a full-time um, training program and um, I was just not happy in neither because I never had enough time for anything and um, so I kind of wanted to retire after London, but then um, visiting a friend of mine in America, um, I got to know the Paralympic sports actually. Um, I kind of um, experienced the joy of sports in a different way again, um, meeting her husband and um, former Paralympian himself. Um, I, I kind of learned how to have fun in sports again and like change my perspective about competition. Um, so I decided in 2013 to move over to America and um, give it another shot for Rio. Um, my coach then um, kind of talked me into um, yeah, going on in sports. Like um, he was the very first person ever to say, um, 
you don't have to prove yourself. Like you're already running, you already proved yourself. Like um, you being here and you giving it a shot is already enough for me. Um, but now we have to take it to the next level. And I know you can win gold and I know you can run those in those times and run, um, yeah, for gold. Um, gave me a different perspective because like um, up until that point, I always had to prove myself because no one believed in my dreams to happen. And he was the first one ever to not just dream with me, but dream even higher. And um, so I moved to America and it was the first year was probably a nightmare. Um, I cried more in that year than in my entire life combined, probably. Um, I had the most intense fights ever. Um, probably once a week at least, we would yell at each other. Um, he literally broke me in the first couple of months. Um, saying that though, he has a degree, um, not just in sports um, and... Um, like an exercise science type degree? Yeah, he has a um, he has three degrees. So he has a degree in sports. I don't know how to say it really, um, but like as a coach, yep. um, also as a um, physiologist, mm-hmm. and um, and in how would you say that? Like he was working as a mentor, so he like studied. Um, as a what, sorry, as a mentor? Um, yeah, like who was working as like a counsellor um, for like... Um, so like psychology yes, type degree? Yes, that's yep. all, yeah. So um, he was working usually with like um, young adults that has have committed a crime and coming back from that. Um, so he was a mentor, like a counsellor in that. Um, but anyway, he was really talented in using sports as a tool in progressing mentally and um, approaching things... Um, physically to approach the mental side and so training was just ridiculously hard Um, he like planned pretty much in like breaking me as a person in order to build me up from scratch again Um, like break every belief that I had up until that point and make me establish a different different kind of um, perception of sports and how how was that for you because I guess uh, people could look at your accident and say, well, that broke you enough and you've had to build yourself up and you've done really well. But you obviously realise within yourself that you created these mental barriers and these belief systems around you. you were doing it to prove yourself as opposed to doing it, like you said, for the enjoyment. But stepping into that environment must have been very, very hard when he's literally trying to break you down again to rebuild you. Did you? Was there times through those initial periods where you sort of didn't believe in his systems and you didn't buy into it? Or were you there saying to yourself, no, this is what I need, I know it, it's bloody tough, but I've been through worse? Um, honestly, when I moved over there, I promised myself that I at least give it a try for a full year. Um, I quit my job. I um, sold my, well, gave away my apartment there. I left my family, my friends, um, moved to America. I didn't know anyone but him and his wife. And so doing that step, I said, well, if I don't give it a proper shot, I don't do it at all. So um, when I moved there, um Germany, the German team wasn't quite happy with me. So they cut pretty much all my funding. So I knew I would have to live off my savings for at least the next year. Um, my parents were supportive though, but um, altogether I went from like being really independent, independently to um, yeah, being reliant again of like um, my savings, my parents, and um, obviously relying on that new coach to, um, to do well. And um, 
I got there and the first day we went through um, the plan for the next year and all for the next four years, actually. And the only thing you really had was like a ripped off envelope where the training plan was written on. And all it really says was like um, track between three and seven times a week, um, gym about uh, three till 10 times a week. And um, we want to achieve those in those times and that in that distance. Um, And um, that was it pretty much. I said, well, like I just like, cancelled my life in Germany moved across the ocean and that's all you have to be prepared um but anyway I started and um on the first week it was just ridiculously hard like the third day of training was the hardest because I was already so sore from the last couple of days and I got there in training in the afternoon and um he had me do a machine um where I had to uh, it's kind of combined like strength and um endurance and I was just really really um weak at that point so um he wanted me to do 1200 of that and when I started I could do like 10 or 15 I said no way I'm gonna make it to like thousand let alone 1200 um he said well just get started and after a while like my hands started to hurt and my muscles started to hurt and I just didn't want to do it anymore and it was getting light and I was jet lagged and hungry and um altogether I just like broke out in tears and he was just like hard like he wouldn't let me quit I was sitting there up until um 10 30 that night finishing off the exercise with 12 open blisters on my hands um going to bed and just didn't have an idea how I would make it through the next year and obviously um, doing that and doing so um, like not track related things like for the first three months I didn't even see a track I all I did was weights all I did was strength strength training um, yeah obviously I didn't have an idea if it would work for me and if I, I would, was going to be successful and um, obviously then um well, going into the first competition, I didn't even know what to expect. Like, you know, the first long jump competition I did, I had one session long jumping before done. Like we didn't really do anything on the track because my coach believed I didn't have enough good enough base. And so for the long-term plan in Rio, I needed to be strong. And um, so he pretty much... Um, yeah, just made me strong the first year and um, hope that the competition would work out all right. <laughs> and now that that's quite amazing, actually. Yeah, he really did literally break you down. Now I know what you mean by that. But it obviously worked because we'll fast forward a little bit and you went into uh, Doha 2015 Para World Championships, obviously as the favourite. And this time there was expectations on you because you jumped well and... What were the expectations like of yourself? Um, honestly, in that point, obviously, I wanted to win gold. But in that moment, it didn't matter as much because I already proved myself. Um, like for me, I knew the big plan was Rio. For me, the big plan was to compete well in Rio. Um, so obviously, um, World Champs 215 was important along the way. And it was important to be funded again and like you know, um, be seen as an athlete. Um, but when I went into the competition, I knew that I had it. Like I knew that I did everything in order to win. And if I didn't win, then someone else was just better. But, um, I still also knew that I still had time to be, to be in shape for Rio. So no matter the outcome, I knew obviously winning gold was amazing. And, um, 
and was great and was a great experience and gave me strength for Rio. But if it wouldn't have happened, it wouldn't have affected my way to Rio that much. Okay, so yeah, right. So you did, you, you said it there, you won gold in the long jump in Doha at the 2015 World Champs, broke the world record at that time. I still remember it very excitedly. I was at the warm-up track uh, with some athletes at that period of time and I was racing upstairs watching you jump and I'd race back down and Scotty and I were chatting and we knew what was going on. And then uh, if, if we move from there into Rio, that's where obviously you made the move to America with the sights of Rio, like you just said. So how was it then breaking the world record, gold medal in the long jump uh, in Doha 2015 and a silver in the 100 metres actually, by the way, and a PB there in Doha at that time. So then you really were going in as the hot favourite and with a lot of expectations from all the competitors, all the para community that knows who you are, what you can achieve. Obviously have your own expectations because you're a high achiever how is it then stepping into the Rio Paralympics with all those expectations? It was just amazing because in like in comparison to how I felt in London, it was I was really secure about what I was doing. I felt like I trained well, I was mentally well prepared. And I think that was a big piece that I was missing in London, that mentally I was just not an athlete. Like physically I was and I was training full time and I was feeling in shape, um, yet I couldn't like um, on point show it and I knew coming into Rio that my preparation went so well and even at that point like I was just coming back from an injury just before Rio but I knew nothing that would happen happen now or like no matter how the situation was there was nothing preventing me from performing well because I knew I was prepared well enough to like no matter um, the circumstances to to show what I what I trained for. And I'm just thinking, this one, I didn't miss a beat. I was at your event and I sat there in the stands at Rio, watched every one of every girl's jumps in your competition. And I can still picture your face before each jump, but particularly before your biggest jump. And I can't believe how calm you're, you are able to make your face look. How was, how was your operating system on the other side of that really calm face? Were you calm and collected? I was super relaxed. Like I came in the stadium, smiling, enjoying the atmosphere. Um, like again, comparing to London, I was just scared and I was intimidated. I didn't enjoy a single second out there. Well, in Rio, I came out and like I soaked up the atmosphere and um, the people in the stadium. I knew my parents were there again, and I knew everyone was watching, and I enjoyed it because um, I was prepared well and I was ready to show off what I trained for. And um, like coming in that competition um like on the in the warm-up already I took it like super easy I knew that the quorum time was super long um so like all I did really like all my competitors were already running around and I was just sitting in the tent and like listening to my music and um probably about 15 minutes before I had to go on the call I like put it on my leg and did a couple of run-throughs and um it's like well I might just say um what I can do in the quorum and just um get ready there um and all together it was like um it was very, very special. So I couldn't say I would imagine it to be just a training session. I actually um, focused on 
actually it being a competition and it being important. Um, so I didn't just like tell myself or like just do it how he did in training. Like I do the opposite. I like I tell myself this is competition. This is important. You have to be focused on point and like actually make myself the pressure. And the moment I got in the stadium, I already made myself the pressure. I already like lived all those um, possible outcomes that in that moment it didn't really matter because like I had it. I knew that I had it. And um, at that moment it was about enjoying because like I already did all the hard training. I already had those really hard times, those like sessions where I like went home with tears in my eyes and all those um, sessions where I didn't quite know how to get out of bed the next morning because I was so sore. And that moment was for me to enjoy. And that's what I did. And yeah, the How results came. How much more did you enjoy it? Yeah, when the when the results came. So you were you were calm and collected on the outside. You were calm and confident on the inside. When you jumped that four ninety three. How, how did that feel? Um, it was amazing. Um, obviously, I wanted to jump five. Like, that was the only, um, yeah, not so great part of other competition. Um, but Typical my athlete, I love it. <laughs> 493, world record, gold medal, but wanted more. Wanted five metres. I wanted the five metres because I also had the bet with Scott that if I would jump five metres, he would um, pay for the import cost of my dog <laughs> coming into Australia. <laughs> That's right. I didn't know about that bet. <laughs> so I had that bet obviously in the back of my mind. But I mean, altogether, um, my head coach was there and the head coach was um, also coaching me during the competition. And he said, like, this is the best competition I saw you doing in your entire career. Um, and I felt it. Like, I felt it was good and I felt that my jump was good. Obviously, there are always things to work on and um, that's why I jumped 493 and not 5 metres, how I wanted it to do. Um, but altogether, um, I think me enjoying being there made me perform well. I'm going to link it up in the show notes for people to watch because it's really cool, especially for those listeners who have never seen uh, amputee long jump and then for yourself, Vanessa, as a double amputee, it's quite amazing the positions that you are able to get yourself into and to be able to trust because you're an above knee, double above knee amputee and therefore you have uh, prosthetic knees and you have to fully just trust that when you place that blade on the ground to jump that it's not going to collapse and it will take you through the air. So there's so many small components that have to work in order for you to, to be able to jump like that. So I'm going to link it in so people can see it. Rio was amazing and you won, also won a silver medal there in the 100 and ran uh, another PB in the 100. So you came away as gold and silver medalist and uh, also world record holder in the long jump. And as we mentioned before, you're not competing in these world championships because you're coming over to the great land of Australia and you need to go through that transition period. But obviously you mentioned before Tokyo. So you, Tokyo 2020 is definitely on the radar for you. And what's what's your uh, what are your I won't say your expectations, but what are your goals for Tokyo? Um, I really hope that um, during the next couple of years, I'll be able to grow into the full potential of an athlete that I am. So I know that I competed well in Rio and um, going back again to the plan that my coach made when I got there, he wrote down the times and distances that I would jump and run. And he wrote down five meters in the long jump and he wrote down 49 in the 100 meters. Knowing that back then the world record in the 100 was like 59 and um, what was it, four 435 I think in the long jump um he was just off by like seven centimeters and um 0.2 of a second um 
now knowing that um, I still see potentials in um, the way I am as an athlete. So um, I want to work on that, knowing that after Tokyo, I retire, um, being the bad, well, yeah, being or that I have been the best athlete that I could at that point. And I think um, now it is time for me to think about my life after sports. So actually being healthy through sports is like um, first priority now and um, running in a way that makes me look back and say, I ran good. I not just ran fast, but also in a proper way with a good form. And um, same with the long jump. Like I was just always so short in time and preparing for, for Rio because um, – And when he got me as an athlete, my coach, um, he didn't get me in a very good condition, neither mentally nor physically. So I feel like um, everything that I've been doing before moving to America was more like rehab, was more like starting to run. And now looking back, going into America, going into Rio, all I've done up until then was um, doing the base. And I feel like now is the time to do the the fine adjustments and do, um, yeah, grow into, into the final product of an athlete. Brilliant. And you mentioned there about time outside of sport beyond Tokyo, but let's look at time outside of sport now. What I love about you is your desire and your passion to give back and you have you make an impact within the para community. But I'm seeing that expand quite a lot now outside of Paralympic sport, which is awesome. You've had some great opportunities over the past, well, you know, sort of six or eight months that I know about with some campaigns. Um, and I know you have a deep desire to give back and create that legacy within Paralympic sport. And I feel like what you're doing, what we'll talk about now is, is helping you leave that legacy. So you won an award earlier this year called the keep fighting award, which is an initiative inspired by Michael Schumacher. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, it was a really big surprise for me when I got the call just before New Year's um, and they told me more about the award. Um, obviously, I followed um, to the journey of Michael Schumacher. Um, obviously, being German, he was a really successful athlete, really successful driver, but also a personality that had a massive impact on on people, um, not just in Germany, but all over the world. Um, and learning more about the award, um, I really loved how they didn't make it about my achievements in sports but about my journey and um, it was really nice for me to see that actually people realize that things haven't haven't been that easy for me and that um, well like the journey how I lived it and how I experienced it was almost just as important as the result in Rio itself um, which like you know, just as we talked about it, was just as important to actually be successful is in order to enjoy every bit on the way. And um, going into receiving the award of um, a person like um, Nico Rosberg, um, a really successful athlete himself. Um, so he presented you this award on stage, right? Yes. Formula um, One world champion, Nico Rosberg. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that was amazing. It was just a really nice experience. Um, obviously, coming home or even just thinking about it, like how did I earn that? And like how many other athletes or personalities would have earned that? Um, got my thinking processes started um and um so what i experienced as a journey and what i experienced as my own life path um seemed to seem to make an impact on other people and i think that was the first time really that i realized um that um it was a big part of 
well, me being an athlete is not just like what I do, but also what, what I do does to others. Um, and so um, I think that started a, a whole bigger thing and I think it made a massive um massive impact on the decision going on until Tokyo and actually not just living the life as an athlete but also um well deciding what I what I want to do with the um with um what I do to other people and how to use it and the ripple effect from you um being that inspiration being that role model yeah definitely um I mean you do a lot of things without realizing what impact it really has. And um, going back in the preparation to to Rio, when I was not a gold medalist, um, I picked up a couple of sponsors. Um, those were um, some more local, um, smallish companies. And I said, oh, that's how nice. That's really nice. And um, I was wondering how that started. And I also, like a lot of athletes or a lot of other people asked me, how, how did that company come up with you because it wasn't even the area where I was living um and like Paralympic sports is still not that big of a sports despite all all around the world or people don't really see it as much um and so um now looking back and knowing what I know now is um like they offer me not just money but they offer me a support they say well whenever you need anything um we're here for you um not because they expected anything back but because just me being connected to them already gave them something back. And um, without realizing, like, um, obviously not just because of saying thank you to the company, I decided in going in and do stuff with the employees. Um, it gave me a massive um, return of, of energy, but also gave a massive energy into the company. So um, now every single year, um, the, the company takes a day where they pay their employees just as they were working and giving them a day of like a sort of like employee party where they spend time with me where they can like touch the metal take pictures with me um also obviously talk with them and just like have a good time and um I think all that um that I experienced through not just sponsorship deals or that award is um is something that is really important um just as I recently learned like um people working on something whether it is work or like a private thing the most important thing is that keeps them going is the feeling of making an impact and um I think as an athlete um being connected to companies and making the impact within the company even though it's just a couple hundred people or even if it's just 20 people um means that they also pass it on onto other people and um make a a positive impact in lives of not just that employee but also their families um um yeah definitely opened a different perspective to me um and shows what the power of sport really is and it's not just success it's not just medals it's also the whole um whole idea how you approach your sport and how you live it absolutely i like what you said there about your realization about because i believe and i i say that uh people are most congruent with themselves and and the word fulfillment actually falls into place when they're able to serve and serve for other people and make that impact and they become more in a line within their lives and it excites me uh, that you're a part of that because they support a lot of other charities too don't they the schumacher foundation they they do a lot of charity work and i think it's obviously like you said they're they're creating a community and a family and making you feel welcome as part of it not just giving you a prize and saying well done it's actually that deep 
valuable personal connection. Yeah, definitely. And I'm still um, in contact with them and we're still doing stuff together. Not because they pay me for it or anything. Like I'm, I just love to be part of it and I truly believe in, um, in what they do. And it is um, using or like living the legacy of Michael Schumacher that he created throughout his life in a way that he would love to see now. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's powerful, very powerful in itself. You were also in Paris earlier this year for the launch of a powerful road safety campaign that you're an ambassador for. Some of the other ambassadors include the singer Pharrell Williams, tennis player Rafael Nadal, um, Michelle Yeoh, who's the actress from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and, and some James Bond films, uh, Formula One world champion drivers Fernando Alonso and Nico Rosberg, plus a few other really big names from other sports. Vanessa, this is massive. This campaign is huge and you're part of the campaign now that aims to save hashtag 3,500 lives per day. So I've looked into it and seen that that's how many fatalities we have on the road per day and this is their international campaign. They even say on their uh, online when I was looking into it that they will be impacting sorry they will be in in the lives of over one billion people through this campaign it's huge yes um so again um obviously that is initiated from the now fia um boss um jean tante um and he is um i don't want to lie i would say he's probably 72 years old um i had the chance to meet him a couple of times and have some really good conversations with him and he is he initiated that campaign because it's close to his heart and um saying that every single ambassador that worked for the campaign every single photographer involved every everything was literally volunteer work so no one got paid for the campaign um, which in my opinion makes it even bigger um, and John Todd had that idea that the FIA has is such a big impactor in in their field obviously in motorsports um, there's so much money involved and so much um, yeah, they do. Um, he had their dream to to use that money and make an impact. And um, like one of the most common death, especially in young people, are road casualties. And um, having that idea and putting it into plan and getting those massive and great ambassadors on his side um, was a fantastic idea because um, – Who's going to, if your dad's going to tell you, please buckle up, please do this and that, what is a young person going to say and think? Um, what if a person he looks up to, such as like Pharrell Williams or such as um, Rafael Nadal is telling me the same thing and it has such a such a different effect on the young person. And so um, introducing a new view of road safety as not something that is uncool or something that is unhandy or something that is just not convenient as something that is a must and that is like um, standard and that is established, um, not just in older people, but actually um, within that group that inspires them and was a massive and great idea. And um, knowing now what countries display those road safety campaigns, um, such as Bulgaria, such as India, um, countries where road safety just doesn't play a role and where it's just like not something that is displayed, nothing that is that important to people um, is amazing to see because I believe that's going to have a massive impact and I'm it's going to um, save so many lives. Because that that's a really cool, powerful campaign. Even the Pope was involved in the delivery of it. He did a video message, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Um, after he was 
Yeah, he did. Um, I also really loved uh, meeting um, Rad Al Hussein. Um, really impressive person. Um, obviously, um, doing some work with that campaign as well. Um, I think people realized how important it is to um, to to transfer that message and um, how powerful it can be. Is it part of this one or part of your, uh, was it the scholarship with the Shoemaker Foundation that you're doing work now in the Sports Business Academy and doing some courses around that? Um, that's actually involved with the, um, the Keep Fighting Award they received. Um, actually something that I really um, thought was a massive idea, not just to give money out or a prize out to, to a person, but actually give them the opportunity to develop as a person. Um, and for me, um, I studied um, in media and worked in media, but um, obviously always been an athlete since um, so in so many years, but there are so many things that I feel and know that it is there, but just don't quite know how it works that I'm now learning in that university, um, whether it is like about leadership, entrepreneurship and how to, to build a, a purpose in, in your job, in your profession. Um, it is really interesting and I enjoyed a lot actually. Very, uh, amazing skills for you to be able to take into every aspect of your athletic career and beyond like you've mentioned you said there that you'd uh, studied and uh, you'd done your degree in around i'm not sure exactly what it is but i know it's audio visual editing and i'm extremely grateful that you've got that degree <laughs> because you've helped me a lot in recent times uh put together the the podcast launch video and i didn't make it very easy for you with uh filming it on an iphone with some poor lighting and uh doing lots of cuts that you had to try and edit so Thank you for your uh, your effort there in that editing. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> now, um, before we move on, we'll wrap things up shortly, but getting back to the, the legacy around Paralympic sport, I believe you've uh, recently or over time donated some of your running blades and prosthetic knees to other beginner athletes to help them experience sport because you know how much that can change their lives. Definitely. It still baffles me that it is a thing that athletes cannot just pick up running, but actually have to worry about how they're able to have access to prosthetic legs. Like, in my opinion, that'd be something that should be natural. Like, every young person, not just every young person, every person should be able to do sports if they decide to do so and for me knowing how hard it was when I picked up sport or trying to pick up sport and like um, conquering those extra hurdles and conquering those extra adversities and like not being able to afford it or not being able to to have the right equipment available um, that shouldn't be that way and so um, it's obviously amazing um, to give away some of that stuff um, wouldn't happen obviously without the supporters that I have that enable me to buy new prosthetic legs to be still competitive um even though i don't like it that much but technology is important for for us to compete well for us to run uh, and enables us to live the life that we do and um being able to give um some of my stuff away hopefully give some inspiration to young athletes not just to have a running leg but also have run on a running leg that is or was worn by a Paralympic gold medalist maybe that gives them a bit more encouragement to pursue their career and um yeah maybe just enjoy it a little bit more i'm sure that will give them a lot of encouragement when they know that it's a Paralympic uh, world record holder and world champion that's previously used it. 
Now, uh, I was going to talk to you a little bit about your diet, but uh, people can read your blog and I think <laughs> it's really cool on your website and that's also a little bit on there about technology that you just sort of touched on there too. Um, people can read about your, your bulletproof coffee that you made me when, we, uh, when I got here this morning for this <laughs> chat. So thank you for that. I do love a good bulletproof coffee. Now, I'm all about action and I'd love to know what's your advice on what specific action our listeners can take today to become more impactful in their lives and in their community? I think the most important thing is to be more mindful about how we use our free time, our spare time. I think a lot of people say, obviously money as the currency around the world, which is not, because like in the end it is it is time, because like the time we take to, to earn money or the time we take to go on a vacation or whatsoever. And I truly believe in giving back doesn't mean giving away money, but actually it could be a tithing, some sort of like giving giving away 10% of your free time doing voluntary work or um, give away 10% of your knowledge. Like um, use what you experienced or what you learned to to give away for free and enable other people to do a different journey, a similar journey. I believe that um, sharing is not about sharing time, but it is, uh, sorry, Um, I believe that um, sharing is not about sharing money, but mainly about sharing time. And um, for me, it is, for example, going into companies that sponsor me, um, because giving back, in my opinion, is giving time. Love it. So your advice to everyone is about being mindful of your time. And I'm glad that you uh, spoke about giving because... I would like to give you uh, one of our Life Tees. You're very aware of our uh, Life Tees campaign because obviously Scotty has the Grateful Tea and you have uh, you wear his tea. And for every guest that I have on the podcast, I give them a gift and it's often a Life Tee. So I want to give you one that's not Scotty's one. This is one of <laughs> our you. limited life ones. So Thank speaking of giving, there you go. And now we're going to go into... Uh, the fast five questions that I haven't told you about. Now, this is just for you to just answer them really quickly, uh, whatever whatever comes to mind straight away. Okay, you ready? Yes. What's one habit you wish you could change? Thinking too much. What makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energised? Um, seeing a positive reaction of another person. Lovely. Have you ever washed a dog? Washed my dog. Washed a dog. A dog, plenty of times. There you go. I'm glad. (laughs) I've met little Milo. I'm sure he needs a lot of washes actually. He does. (laughs) What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Be mindful. Be more mindful. And what are you most grateful for in your life right now? The support of the people that I love. Beautiful. Where can our listeners learn more about you? So on social media and uh, on, on the World Wide Web. And how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? I think at that stage, what is most important for me to transfer on my messages. So I reckon you can obviously read about me on Facebook. Um, I also write a blog, um, not very regularly, but um, if something's really close to my heart, I find the time and write something. Um, so if you share that on um, social media or whatsoever, um, that would be really helpful because um, gives me better reach, um, gives me more people I talk to helps you make more of an impact absolutely and like i said i'll link all that up in the show notes and people can read that blog and follow you online and um, be a part of your journey vanessa Lowe, you're a legend you're a very humble present and inspirational soul keep shining your valuable light to the world thank you
There you have it. A beautiful example of amplified courage and resilience to not only be the best version of yourself, but deeply value the ripple effect you're making along the way. Please tag Vanessa and I on social media and let us know that you listened to this episode and what you took from it. Check out the show notes online at yourlifeofimpact.com or from your podcast app and follow Vanessa's journey. Next time we have Vanessa on the podcast, we'll definitely talk a lot more about food because her and I always bond a lot over our similar eating habits and the abundance of healthy food that the world has to offer. We actually sat for a good 45 minutes after this episode and she showed me some great foodie apps to help discover more great places in Germany. If you like this episode, please jump onto your podcast app and give us a five-star review. This helps immensely for me to be able to continue delivering value to you. It doesn't matter what app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes Podcast, whether it's Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever it is. You guys subscribing and downloading each episode is what keeps this podcast alive. And also, please share with your friends, your family, your community, and everyone you believe will benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to give me your feedback on what you loved and what you want to hear more of, so what value I can help bring into your reality. Reach out to us on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Life for Excellence. That's at L-I-F-E-F-O-R-X-L-N-S. And you can also find us at Your Life of Impact. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.